morning. This morning's session is a healthcare session. Um, it is entitled Medical Scheme Pricing and Design. Uh, really only the first paper or presentation is on that topic. The second one is really around the assessment of, of, of um, solvency. So that will be presented by Gary Scott and Adam Lowe. Um, they've also won the prize, so well done on that. Congrats. Um, but before that, the first presentation will be by Josh Kaplan on a paper co-presented with Shivani entitled An Actuarial Perspective on Medical Scheme Benefit Design. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for coming out today. Um, I'll get started as soon as it comes back. Um, just a quick intro. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about some of the lessons that I've learned in my research around medical scheme benefit design over the last few years uh, in the hopes that these lessons can be used uh, going forward. Um, unfortunately, I do not have a lot of time, uh, so I'm going to jump straight to it. All right, so from the consumer's perspective, uh, the medical scheme environment is inherently complex. There are a large number of benefit options, there is confusing terminology employed in medical scheme brochures, and the benefits themselves are complex with a large number of benefit options. So what does this mean? The consequence of this is that there's complexity, and the consequence of this complexity is that consumer decision-making is hampered. So why is this important? Uh, well, it's important given the increased attention to treating customers fairly in the financial services industry, uh, but also in general. Uh, I'm going to start off with a quick uh, background into the regulatory environment surrounding medical schemes uh, and how this regulatory, regulatory environment uh, impacts on medical scheme benefit design. Uh, I know a lot of you are aware of it, so I'm going to uh, quickly breeze through it. All right, so medical, scheme, uh, medical schemes are regulated on social solidarity principles. Solidarity as a concept implies that the risks that each household faces uh, from the cost and delivery of healthcare should be fairly distributed. In other words, contributions should be made according to ability to pay, uh, and healthcare should be provided according to need. And this requires cross-subsidies from the healthy to the sick, uh, and from high-income individuals to low-income individuals. Uh, in the South African medical scheme environment, solidarity is achieved through three mechanisms. Uh, open enrollment, which implies guaranteed acceptance. Community rating, uh, which implies that members must be charged the same standard rate for a common package of benefits. Uh, and of course, prescribed minimum benefits, uh, which are minimum sets of benefits which schemes are required to provide to all the members, uh, and these benefits must be covered uh, in full. Um, however, the traditional enforcement of solidarity principles is currently lacking in the South African medical scheme environment. Uh, traditionally, solidarity is accompanied by mandatory cover uh, and some form of a risk equalization mechanism, both of which are essential, uh, essential uh, to stabilize risk pools uh, and ensure competition on the basis of efficiency and not on the basis of risk selection. Uh, in addition, uh, risk pooling in the South African medical scheme environment occurs at the level of benefit option, and schemes are required to treat each option as a separate risk pool for community rating. Uh, this means that risk pools are now smaller, which limits schemes' ability to spread risks uh, and lower contribution rates. Uh, so if you combine all these factors together, we see that the result is an inherently unstable environment. Uh, larger schemes are perhaps more competitive, owing to the larger and perhaps uh, more homogeneous risk pools they can achieve, and in such an environment, schemes are incentivized to risk select or cherry pick members through the use of benefit design. Uh, I'm quickly going to run you through the methodology that we used uh, to analyze the benefit option environment. 
Okay, so our investigation looked at all open schemes uh, that had at least 30,000 beneficiaries and offered at least four registered benefit options. Uh, these criteria were based on the fact that we only wanted to look at large schemes with a sustainable number of members, uh, but we also wanted the ability to, have, uh, to compare uh, how the options differed between all the different schemes. Uh, so we landed up assessing 118 benefit options out of 140 available in the market. Um, importantly, benefits were analyzed from the perspective of a family with a single member uh, and one child dependent. However, the structure of the, fam the of a family that we looked at or for any benefit option investigation is not that pivotal uh, since we observed that benefit limits simply increase with each additional benefit uh, dependent added on. Uh, importantly, this investigation was from the perspective of a consumer. Uh, so all data uh, and all uh, information captured was that which was freely available in the market at the time. And so we used uh, medical scheme brochures from the internet or actual physical brochures to capture all the information. Um, so benefit options, the benefits that they offered were broken down according to five main categories. Day-to-day uh, -day benefits, chronic medicine benefits, hospital benefits, cancer benefits, and additional benefits uh, which could not be categorized into the other benefit categories. Uh, each of these categories were then further broken down into subcategories in order to get a sense of the benefits uh, that were on offer. Uh, I'm not going to run through them, uh, there's quite a lot to go through, so please do so in your own time. Uh, Additionally, in order to assist with the investigation, benefit options were classified according to plan type. Um, and the criteria for, this plan, for defining and for grouping these benefit options according to plan type uh, was how the benefit options covered day-to-day -day expenditure. Um, so, for example, hospital plans, these generally provide cover for no day-to-day -day expenditure uh, and typically only cover in-hospital events. Uh, new generation options, these pay for day-to-day -day expenditure from a medical savings account, uh, which the member funds themselves. Traditional options, uh, traditional options pay for day-to-day -day expenses from risk benefits. And hybrid options are a combination between traditional options uh, and uh, new generation options, where day-to-day -day expenses are covered from a combination of risk benefits and a medical savings account. Um, and finally, we had networked options. Networked options are benefit options where the member is required to visit a provider uh, within the network associated with the scheme in order to obtain uh, his day-to-day -day expenses. Um, before I go on to the results, uh, I just want to note that I'm just going to be touching on the results of this investigation. Uh, my intention today is not to give a detailed comparison of the benefits that were on offer, uh, but rather to use some of the key results that we found in order to illustrate the complexity that a consumer faces in choosing a benefit option, uh, but also perhaps to provide some explanation as to why schemes decided to design benefit options in the way that they did. All right, um, so benefit design mechanisms are in essence decisions in rationing, uh, demand-side rationing and supply-side rationing. Uh, for those who don't know, demand-side rationing is any mechanism that prohibits a consumer uh, from freely expressing their demand for healthcare. And these may be monetary means or non-monetary means. Uh, monetary means, we have co-payments and deductibles uh, and medical savings accounts, and non-monetary means are the rest. I'm quickly going to run through a few key points. Uh, so co-payments and deductibles are, in essence, a form of cost sharing. Uh, they are widely used throughout schemes, uh, particularly in cases uh, where the, well, the member chose to use a provider that was not within the schemes networked. Um, they're also used to channel utilization. Uh, for example, a number of benefit options offered members the choice of obtaining an elective procedure in the doctor's rooms as opposed to in hospital. 
Uh, in cases where the member chose to use a provider in the hospital as opposed to in the doctor's rooms, they were charged a co-payment as, of course, it would be more expensive. Uh, medical savings accounts. Uh, medical savings accounts, uh, the amount of the savings uh, varied across the schemes, obviously because contributions, contribution rates vary. Um, and the intention of medical savings accounts is to transfer rationing uh, to the member and incentivize members to ration their own day-to-day -day expenditure. Uh, what we found quite interesting was that medica medical savings accounts were traditionally marketed as a benefit, uh, whereas in reality, a medical savings account is simply some form of a dedicated savings account which the member funds themselves. Uh, benefit limits are pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to go through it. What is important to take away from benefit limits is the large variation observed between different benefit options and uh, for each condition covered, uh, which made comparison incredibly difficult. Uh, case management and disease management, um, these are widely employed throughout schemes. However, there was not uh, sufficient data available in order to compare these programs. Um, importantly, however, uh, these case management and disease management were frequently employed, particularly in the management of chronic diseases, uh, where members were required to join a chronic care management program uh, before cover would be <coughs> excuse me, provided. Uh, preventative care and incentive programs, again, these are frequently employed throughout schemes, and they're um, sometimes used as a form of subtle risk rating uh, in order to encourage the younger and healthier members to join. Uh, quickly, supply-side rationing. Uh, these focus on the provider of healthcare uh, and incentivize them to ration the services that they provide. I'm not going to go through them. Preferred provider networks, again, incredibly uh, common in the current medical scheme environment. Alternative reimbursement mechanisms. We didn't look at them directly. Uh, the consumer cannot see them in a medical scheme brochure, for example. Uh, but from an actuarial point of view, it is important to recognize their existence uh, when designing a benefit option. All right. So... There should be figures there. Just like to point that out. Um, so I'm going to run you through what this graph was. Um, so basically, this graph shows you the proportion of beneficiaries with cover for more than 40 chronic diseases in 2003, 2004, and 2014. Um, so I decided to extract the example of benefit limits on chronic conditions in order to illustrate how schemes have the ability uh, to use benefit design in order to risk select and cherry pick members. Uh, so unfortunately, I can't. There's no figures here, but. Just to give you an idea, uh, the left graph shows the proportion of beneficiaries, uh, the left axis shows the proportion of beneficiaries covered, um, and the first dot over there is the year 2003, and then 2004, and then 2014, right at the bottom. Uh, now, I'm aware of the fact that this graph doesn't illustrate how schemes are using benefit design to risk select members, uh, but it does show how schemes change their behavior in order to limit the risks that they were facing. Uh, for example, between 2003 and 2004, that large drop in the number of chronic conditions covered might be explained by the fact uh, that the CDL was introduced into the PMB package. Uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, the chronic disease list is a list of some 25 chronic conditions for which the diagnosis, treatment, and medication is required to be covered by the scheme in full. Uh, so this change in behavior and the use of benefit design uh, to you know, risk, uh, limit the risks that the schemes were facing could be based on the fact that the schemes had to cover these conditions in full now, whereas before they weren't required to cover them in full. Um, I'm kind of hoping that the next graph, ah, kind of, but disappointing. Okay, so um, this graph shows the average age and monthly contribution rates by the number of chronic conditions covered. Uh, I'm gonna have to run here. Okay, so the x-axis over here, that should be a zero. Um, and that includes all options that only provided coverage uh, for chronic conditions included in the PMBs. Uh, whereas this graph, or the, this uh, grouping of options over here, shows you uh, was 
between 1 and 10. Uh, and that indicates that those options provided coverage for between 1 and 10 additional conditions uh, over and above those already included in the PMB package. Um, this axis is the average age, and that axis is the average contribution rates. Uh, and this line over here shows the average age uh, according to the number of chronic conditions covered uh, for the homogeneous groupings of benefit options uh, that we found. Um, okay, so clearly this graph shows that uh, options that provided coverage for more chronic conditions had higher average ages and higher contribution rates, uh, as opposed to options that only provided coverage uh, for the minimum number of chronic conditions, i.e. those conditions only included uh, within the chronic disease list. Um, and this option, or well, this graph shows you how schemes have the ability to use benefit design to risk select members. By providing coverage uh, for more chronic conditions, they will attract a higher average age profile, and by providing coverage for uh, less chronic conditions, they can attract a lower average age profile. Okay, so an important concept which I touched on earlier in the investigation was the idea of providing consumer value. Uh, however, there are a number of concepts which inhibit uh, this uh, provision of consumer value for the consumer. Uh, and the key one is product complexity and comparability. The review of benefit options highlighted uh, the low level of comparability between benefit options. In this investigation, capturing of benefit options in a standardized format was required in order to enable comparison. Uh, however, the multidimensional nature of these benefit options made the process manual and time consuming. Uh, and this raised the questions about the ability of consumer to undertake a meaningful comparison. Uh, how will a consumer aggregate all this information in order to make a decision, an informed decision, about which option would best suit them and meet the needs that they are facing? Um, two other important balances that need to be found from an actual point of view and which contribute to product complexity and comparability are the balances between transparency uh, and consumer understanding, as well as the balance between comprehensiveness versus simplicity. Okay, so what do I mean by this? Um, much of what is contained in medical scheme brochures relates to explicit rationing. Uh, what is explicit rationing? Well, explicit rationing means that the basis or criteria that are used in making resource allocation decisions are clearly openly and directly specified. Uh, for example, if a medical scheme uh, uses explicit, a brochure uses explicit rationing, uh, then the benefit limits for each different chronic condition covered would be directly specified. Uh, however, this leads to complexity, as the product will outline what will and will not be paid for. Um, thus, despite the intention of the schemes in being transparent, it ultimately results in increased complexity for the consumer in making the decision, uh, as they may not be able to keep track of all the different rules that are in place. Um, so associated with this transparency and consumer understanding is the idea of comprehensiveness versus simplicity and finding that balance. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, in comprehensiveness, I'm talking about the fact that if schemes decide to include a large number of, de uh, like a lot of detail in their benefit brochures by clearly outlining what will and will not be covered uh, and including all the rules uh, that, they need, that members need to follow in order to obtain coverage, uh, this increases the complexity for the consumer uh, in making a decision. Um, conversely, by making a brochure simple, um, this will increase the ability of the consumer to make a decision, uh, but may not enable them to make an informed decision by not providing sufficient information. So balance needs to be found. Um, and underlying this inherent complexity and comparability in the medical scheme environment is the inherent complexity of healthcare and of medical care in general. Uh, consumers have different needs for healthcare. Uh, there's confusing terminology employed which consumers may not be able to understand. And there are different care pathways which a consumer may follow, but they may not have the ability or the skills uh, to accurately assess which care pathway would best suit them. Um, 
Now, I've demonstrated to you the product complexity and the, and the low levels of comparability, um, and associated with this is the ability of the consumer to make a decision. Uh, how would a consumer go about deciding on a benefit option that would best suit them? Uh, so we kind of thought that the decision process for consumer is in essence a two-tier process, uh, ignoring uh, an employer, of course. Uh, the first choice would be uh, the choice of a scheme, uh, and the second choice would be the choice of a benefit option. Um, now, in theory, uh, medical scheme members should have a high level of involvement in the purchasing process, owing to the financial significance uh, of the purchase. Uh, however, the low levels of comparability, which I demonstrated uh, in the previous slide, um, hinders this decision-making process. Uh, and ultimately, what could occur for the majority of consumers is that they ultimately make, land on making decisions uh, without fully engaging, uh, without full knowledge, or simply rely on their advice uh, from bro brokers, which is harmful, as it gives brokers excessive market power. Um, so the consequence of this inherent complexity that is evidenced in this uh, medical scheme environment is that the decision-making process might not be based on the intrinsic value of the option, uh, whereby intrins intrinsic value, I'm talking about the actual medical benefits on offer, uh, but rather based on some other proxy factors. Uh, for example, the brand awareness of the scheme or the existence of a loyalty program. Um, associated with this concept of decision-making and of product complexity and low levels of comparability, is the idea of treating customers fairly. Um, this is not a concept which has been broadly explored in the South African medical scheme environment, uh, but I do believe that it's a concept that does need further exploration. Uh, just to give a quick background, uh, TCFE regulations are implemented by the Financial Services Board, um, and they are intended to ensure that customers are treated fairly uh, in all stages of the product cycle, uh, from product design and promotion to claims, settlements, and disputes. Um, however, importantly, medical schemes are not required to demonstrate a commitment to these TCF principles as they are, as they are regulated under the Medical Schemes Act. Um, and now while medical schemes are required to submit new benefit options, brochures, uh, and benefit options to the Council for Medical Schemes, sorry, the Registrar, uh, these options are not assessed in terms of fairness. Uh, I got some feedback and somebody said, no, they are assessed in terms of fairness. And I said, okay, fine, they might be assessed in terms of fairness, uh, but there's no formal framework for assessment uh, of a benefit option in terms of treating customers fairly. And this is a concept that needs to be dealt with. Um, importantly, medical scheme consumers do uh, have some level of cover in terms of being protected under the Consumer Protection Act, uh, in terms of misrepresentation or bad marketing, um, et cetera. Uh, but those considerations and those protections are, aren't uh, industry-specific, uh, which does, of course, leave some gaps uh, in, the in protection for the consumer. Okay, so I've said quite a lot. It's quite a dense presentation to put into a few minutes. Um, so I thought I'd kind of summer, uh, sum all this information up uh, for the challenges going forward for a healthcare actuary. Uh, and the first point is regulations. Okay, so the regulatory environment uh, creates a clear incentive for schemes to use benefit design uh, to risk select members. Uh, and it lacks the necessary protections against anti-selection in order to offset uh, these incentives. Um, as I stated earlier, in, such an in our environment presently, we don't have a risk equalization fund uh, and we don't have mandatory cover in order to complete the solidarity principles. Uh, and in such an environment, it is inevitable that schemes will use benefit design to risk select members and will not compete on the basis of efficiency, value, or service. Um, it is also likely that this low levels of product comparability and the high level of complexity um, is a consequence of this inherently unstable environment. Uh, furthermore, as I stated previously, given that risk pooling occurs at the level of benefit options, uh, there's an incentive to design benefit options in such a way that the risk pool can be split into more homogeneous subgroups. In essence, to use uh, risk pooling to 
uh, proxy risk-grade members. Um, why is this an issue? Well, it's an issue uh, because using benefit design to risk-select members goes against the spirit of the Medical Schemes Act and undermines the principles of social solidarity uh, which are embedded in the Act. However, uh, what was surprising to me when I started this investigation as a young student at the University of Cape Town uh, was that I found that uh, this was actually understandable uh, from Scheme's point of view, but more importantly, it was rational um, in order to uh, using benefit design uh, to risk-select members. Um, and this was quite an important consideration. Okay, so I've talked about regulation, now I'm going to talk about the products in general uh, and the tensions that we found. So there was a tension between social solidarity and scheme sustainability, uh, but there's also a tension between the imperative to treat customers fairly uh, and the management of schemes risk profiles. And all these tensions and all these balances that need to be found uh, for the healthcare actuary creates a potential ethical dilemma. Uh, so what does this mean for the healthcare actuary? What are the challenges for the, for the profession? Uh, and I think this can kind of be summed up uh, in one sentence. Uh, the challenge for actuaries advising medical schemes is to find ways of delivering value within these regulatory constraints. Uh, some options that might be available are, I don't know, improved communication or efforts, uh, you know, to focus on efficiency rather than this temptation to compete purely on the basis of risk profiles. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Okay, questions, quickly? <laughs> I want to listen to their talk. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Uh, thanks, Josh. Just a quick one. Uh, TCF falls under the FSB and not Correct. under the Council for Medical Schemes. So as far as I understand, it was never meant to regulate or be a part yes. of medical scheme regulations. So are you suggesting that it should be? Or oh, I'm more no. suge suggesting that those specific regulations in terms of treating customers fairly for financial services industry should be applied to the medical schemes industry because they won't be applicable. I mean, this environment is unique. There's a lot of unique challenges and there are a lot of, there are a lot of unique facets that need to be taken into account uh, when, when you know, trying to develop uh, TCF regulations. Uh, so I wasn't trying to uh, state that TCF regulations as it applies there should be applied here. I'm rather stating that the concept of treating customers fairly and putting them first in this complicated environment uh, should be an imperative and it is a concept that definitely needs to be explored further. Cool. Yeah. Hey Josh, uh, just with this TCF thing, do you not believe that the Medical Schemes Act, which is a principle in, in its wholeness, is to protect the best uh, interests of beneficiaries already covers TCF as best as they can or trying to protect members? Because if you read the Medical Schemes Act, that's is the principal component of it. Um, look, I, I do believe that the intention of the Medical Schemes Act is uh, to protect the interests of the customers, uh, but there's nothing in the Medical Schemes Act that relates to how uh, the marketing should be done in terms of protecting the interests of customers. So I believe that the regulations as it stands might protect the, you know, the consumers in terms of the benefits that are offered and scheme sustainability, uh, but I think that more can be done to protect consumers in terms of how uh, benefit designs uh, are displayed to them and how they are marketed to them. Cool. Yo. Um, uh, yeah. I am amazed that you think that medical schemes use purely benefit design for... Uh, no. <laughs> that is what you said, though. Uh, no, so okay. there, there, there is no reason why, even if you could um, <laughs> risk select through benefit design, that you wouldn't be interested in efficiencies, of course. negotiating tariffs better, <laughs> Why would a medical scheme not do that? Because no, if you do, then you, you, you could okay, actually offer better value. Okay. So on what basis are you saying that they're not using it? Okay. Other efficiency Okay, values? sorry. Um, my wording might have been wrong. 
Um, of course, I'm not saying that medical schemes aren't concerned about efficiency, and of course, I'm not uh, you know, implying that they're not concerned about the customer. Uh, all I'm saying is that in such an environment, there is an incentive for schemes to use benefit design to reselect members, and it's rational, right? Uh, but I'm also stating, of course, there are other mechanisms that they can use, uh, but what I was trying to illustrate here is that using benefit design um, to reselect members might go against the interests of customers. Well, I think you should question that assumption, because okay. if a scheme is in a position to actually attract younger and healthier people, and if there's cross-subsidies between the options, and if you look at medical schemes, how the middle options effectively cross-subsidize the old and sick options, then maybe that's not such a bad thing, right? Because then the price for everybody comes down, and it means that they, you can still offer cover for people who are truly sick Agreed. and who need extensive cover. Agreed. Um, so look, I understand. Look, uh, to be honest, when I first set out uh, doing my master's, my intention was actually to build a model that would enable greater comparison of benefit options for the consumer. Uh, and what I ultimately landed up doing was assigning a level of benefit richness to each option by assigning a numerical value to each benefit that was provided uh, on each option. However, uh, that became subjective as I realized that you know, different consumers will place different values on different benefit options. Um, but what I also realized is that enabling consumers to actually choose an option that would best suit their needs and provide the best value to them is actually not sustainable from an industry point of view. Uh, because if you have younger members who are perhaps on an option that is you know, not necessarily best suited to them, and they are perhaps on an option that you know, is a higher contribution rate, whereas they don't need it, uh, the industry kind of needs that at the moment to, to an extent. So I understand what you're saying. Um, does that answer your, your question? Well, the, the, I just want to know whether you agree then that yes. benefit design that yes. attracts young and healthy people could actually be for the principles of social Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay. It's not necessarily against no, 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 that, That's why I ended up saying that it's rational, uh, that what their schemes are doing at the moment is rational. So do you think that it's against the principles of social solidarity? Sorry, just uh, want to understand no. what you are saying. No, you like against you the cross <laughs> I know what you're saying from the whole thing you see. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Shivani, I think, wants to Yeah, um, so answer. I think... I think that point about um, subsidizing between options really rests on whether you're able to cross-subsidize between options. I mean, the law as it stands doesn't allow for that, and the Council for Medical Schemes may turn a blind eye to, you know, that's cross-subsidization actually happening. But, I mean, purely in terms of the law and the way things are structured, um, it, pooling is supposed to happen at an option level. Um, and if you don't have that, that mix of members on an option, then individual options become unsustainable, which we know, right? Which is why top options end up in debt spirals and all of those sorts of things. So there is still a regulatory question about whether it's possible within the current framework to ensure social solidarity. Cool. So last question there. Um, thanks for the presentation. I just wanted to sort of pick your brain. Having touched on the complexity of the benefits across the industry and all these options. There's been suggestions that um, the, the medical in, uh, scheme environment should be changed such that there's only a limited number of options available by some industry players. I think most recently, I don't remember who it was. But I, I just want to pick your brain. What do you think about that? Do you think is that a viable option? Um, do you think this current environment is better? It's uh, a hard question to answer. Um, there's like a lot of different facets that you need to take into account, and I think that needs, of course, further research. Uh, but firstly, you can't, you know, you're not going to be able to just, you know, change an environment like that. Um, but I think maybe standardisation of benefit options to a certain extent before that uh, would assist the environment. Uh, but I, I, look, I, I would need some time to think about it. <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool. Thank you.
Thank you, Josh. This is very good. Um, the next paper, let's get the title exactly. It's entitled Solvency Assessment Regime for South African Medical Schemes by Gary and Adam. Um, and I'll hand over to Gary. Thanks, Alex. Um, my job is really just to give you a brief um, background as to why we wrote the paper and to, I'm entrusted to two, three slides with no formulae on. Then I will hand over to Adam who did all the technical work and he'll explain um, how we um, converted the SAM formula to apply to medical schemes. I think most of you in the room will know that the um, solvency regime that we currently stuck with from a medical scheme perspective um, is both arbitrary and scientific and I think there's been a lot of commentary about that um, and it's a problem because you create on the one end waste, there are schemes certainly at the larger end that are being forced to hold more capital than they need um, and it, it uh, encourages or in, it introduces greater risk because there are schemes at the other end of the spectrum that arguably should be encouraged to hold more reserves. Um, so what we're trying to do with this paper is really use it as a catalyst to engage with the regulator and industry at large to try and move the debate around reforming this important area forward. And we also wanted to put the actual profession at the centre of that debate um, because we think we've got a lot to add and um, we think that a risk-based approach is really the right one to be followed. First of my three slides with no formulae. Um, this really just depicts the current um, solvency regime that we have. Uh, what we've got on the left-hand side really is the um, assets valued at market value and there's a, a reduction in those assets um, for the revaluation reserves um, which is a sort of an accounting concept um, really keeping track of um, un unrealized gains. So the assets less the revaluation reserves are compared against your technical provisions or your liabilities and um, that creates the scheme reserves. And the scheme reserves in, in return are compared against um, our solvency, our statutory solvency requirement of 25% of annual contributions to determine whether you're meeting uh, or not that statutory uh, requirement. What our paper, where our paper is maybe different from um, the other work that um, predates it on, on this topic is that we've used the uh, SAM regulatory environment um, that really is being implemented um, now within the insurance uh, industry um, and we've, we're really able to, to use a, a whole wealth of uh, research and analysis and industry debate um, both nationally and, and um, internationally and look at what, how we can bring that across to, to the medical scheme environment uh, and it, it does two things. One, obviously it, it a lot of the work has been done, so it's a case of just translating it across to the medical scheme environment, but it also contextualizes um, the, the different weightings or the different importance of, of, of the, the risks. Um, so we can sort of look at it from a medical scheme perspective and say, are we happy that operational risk should form this percentage of the total um, um, solvency requirement, or do you think it should be more or less? So it, it gives you a nice sort of reference point um, for the debate. If you look at the SAM regulatory balance sheet, it differs from our current um, balance sheet for medical schemes in two important pl places. The one is that it's the full market value of assets that are taken into account. There's no sort of offsetting of an uh, asset 
uh, risk reserve or revaluation reserve if we have it. Um, and also there's this concept of the free assets. Um, the technical reserves, you add a um, SCR, which is a solvency capital requirement, um, to, to work out what you should be holding, and anything you hold above that is, is, is surplus assets or free assets. Um, and the SCR is very much a risk-based capital calculation, so it reflects all the risks inherent uh, in your medical scheme. Uh, what's quite interesting about the SCR is it's not only the risks on the liability side, but it's also the risks um, on the asset side. Um, so if, if the market value of assets were to increase magically by 10 million uh, rand, your free assets would not go up by the 10 million rand because you would need to hold extra uh, in your SCR in order to cover that uh, risk implied by the extra 10 million. So it's a little bit counter-intuitive. Counter, uh, there's also an MCR, which is just a, a, um, a lower level of, of solvency, uh, and it's really used by the regulator, so things get really serious when you start uncovering your, your MCR. What we've done in the papers, um, we've not changed the basic uh, form of the balance sheet for medical schemes. We don't think it needs to change. We think it actually um, is maybe a better way of looking at it than, than, than the SAM balance sheet. So we've kept this concept of taking the market value of assets and knocking off the asset risk uh, on, on, on the asset side rather than um, doing everything in one under, under the SCR. Uh, and um, we've also... Uh, stayed with the concept of calculating your scheme reserves in the same way. In other words, a market value of assets, less an adjustment, um, less the technical reserves give you the scheme reserves, and you can work out whether that um, is greater or less than uh, what the statutory solvency requirement might be. Um, so one of the reasons for doing this, well, two reasons really. One, we couldn't see any reason for, for, for changing it. We didn't think the SAM balance sheet offered any, any greater insight. But more importantly, we realized that regulatory reform is really tough in the medical scheme environment right now. So we've, we've rather kept the framework as it is, and what we're looking for is maybe um, tweaking or, or a debate on how the revaluation reserve should be uh, transformed into uh, a more risk-based uh, asset risk reserve, and how the solvency requirement should be transformed into a more um, risk-based SCR. I'm going to, at this point, then hand over to, to Adam, who will take you through some of the um, formulae and the different components of the SCR and Asset Risk Reserve. Thanks, Gary. Please excuse me if I jump around. I'm not used to being behind a lectern. Clearly, I haven't lectured as much as I should, maybe should have. Um, what I'm going to do is run through quickly a few of the principles. As Gary said, the SCR is liability-based. There's no asset risk component in the SCR. I'm going to take you through the provisions of the, the, the components that we've included in the SCR. Just to note, we basically have taken not the SAM principles, but the Solvency II principles. SAM doesn't have an explicit healthcare module for reasons of demarcation. So we've actually taken the Solvency II principles outlined in the European insurers, because health insurance falls under financial regulation under Solvency II. But what we've actually ended up with looks very similar to what is used in SAM for short-term insurance. So I'll point out where we've deviated from SAM as well. So just to run quickly through the SCR components. This is the one, the first one we've deviated from SAM. Medical schemes currently, if you budget as a medical scheme for an operating deficit, your solvency requirement is still 25%. That deficit just magically, apparently, doesn't impact your solvency. 
if you're an insurance company and you write loss-making business, you're actually required to hold a technical liability provision on your balance sheet in respect of that business. Obviously, that would, to do that for medical schemes would require, number one, medical schemes to budget a lot more accurately than they do, and number two, would require a change in the regulations. So what we've actually done is we've added a provision for operating deficit component into the SCR. Ideally, this component should be calibrated to the scheme's budget. When we did this research, we obviously don't have access to the 82 scheme in the country's budget. So what we've done is we've come up with a comparatively simple formula that will allow you to do that. That formula essentially uses last year's operating position as a proxy for this year's operating position, then adds an allowance for seasonality. Previously, we had quite a complicated model, and I'm sure Roseanne, who reviewed the paper, would be able to tell you she couldn't make head or tail of it, which probably means it was far too complicated for anybody. <laughs> Luckily, we got a present from council in the 2014 report. They actually gave us seasonality figures for each scheme. So we were able to calculate a seasonality allowance by creating a year-to-date a year-to-date seasonality and then subtracting the final seasonality. And then by that, in doing that, you can come up with a maximum. So this really is a bit of a fudge because it's not strictly part of your solvency calculation. It should really be part of your technical reserves, that liability block. But because of the way the regime is structured, and as Gary said, we don't really want to be trying to deviate too much from that, we've included it in the solvency regime. So the next component is probably the largest. It's your claim variability. And I'm sure any actuary who's worked with medical schemes will tell you that forecasting claims is not the easiest job in the world, especially when you've got a very small scheme, but even in the bigger ones it can be problematic. So we've, so we've calculated a provision for that variability. What we've essentially done is assumed that medical scheme claims follow a log normal distribution, which is a fairly consistent assumption across, across a lot of work that gets done in healthcare. So there's, two, there's then two components to that. The first component is actually finding, remembering that SAM and Solvency 2 uses the principle of a 1 in 200 year event. So the first calculation you need to do is to find the 99.5 percentile of a log normal distribution, given the standard deviation. Unlike a normal distribution, the calculation is not as simple as we'd like it to be. So that first formula, given the standard deviation, and we'll come back to the standard deviation now, shows you how you actually calculate the 99.5 percentile of a, of, a norm, of a log normal distribution. Essentially, you convert the 99th percentile of a standard normal distribution using a variety of E's and logs and, and various subtractions, and you come up with that. This, this we got straight out of Solvency 2. We, we adapted the terminology slightly to make it more understandable. So then, having done that, we need a standard deviation. You can use a normal standard deviation, your, your standard sample standard deviation formula. But because you've got a log normal and because you've got multiple years of claims, what Solvency 2 actually does is that. Another complicated formula, but essentially what it does is it measures the deviation of your claims ratio over the, over the period of your data from the average. That's all it does. So it essentially it forecasts each year, assuming it was the average, then measures the deviations and comes up with a normal, comes up with a standard deviation. We, for the purposes of this paper, went back six years. We started by going back five when we had the 2013 report, then we just added in 2014. The key principle here is we, and I'll show you a graph later, with all the schemes in the country. We believe that you, could, you couldn't calculate this individually for each scheme because you can't assess a one in 200 year event off a five year time series or a six year time series. 
Realistically, you might be able to go back 10 or 15 years off the council data, but you're still going to be nowhere close to where you need to be. So we believe, and it's outlined in our paper, that some aggregation is going to be necessary. At what level, we're not quite sure. Solvency 2 aggregates across Europe, which seems a little excessive. <laughs> We've aggregated in the paper by large, medium, and small schemes, as per the council's definition, and those figures are provided in the paper. They, they vary between about 10 and 15% of, of contributions. Okay. So this, claims and expenses variability risk, it deals with your normal day-to-day -day variability of claims. What the next provision deals with is a single event that could, could ruin a scheme, i.e. catastrophe risk. What we've done here is we've modeled two scenarios, which is again consistent with what Solvency 2 does. The first one is what happens, and this is particularly pertinent given what's recently happened, what happens if a bomb goes off at a stadium and you've got 90,000 people sitting in that stadium? Especially if you're a large medical scheme, you're, liable, you're likely to have a large, large number of members who are going to be part of that accident. And that could potentially ruin a scheme. So to calibrate this, what we've done is use that formula. This, again, is, from, is slightly adapted from Solvency 2. What this does is it, it says, what's the, biggest, what's the biggest stadium in the country? What proportion of people in the country have medical aid? What proportion of those are likely to be injured if there were a bomb scare slash event at the stadium? What is the average cost of treatment? And how many of those people are on your particular scheme? And we've calibrated this. The numbers are in the paper. But we've calibrated the, the catastrophe risk in respect of this as 50 million for the entire industry. So your catastrophe risk provision is 50 million times your market share for, for any particular scheme. The second one is more relevant to restricted schemes. It's what happens if you've got 10,000 of your members in the same office block and there's a structural failure of that office block. Again, the same principle would apply. It's the number of members in the office block times the number that are going to be affected times the average cost of treatment. Again, we've calibrated this using a combination of Solvency 2 numbers and numbers from our client schemes, the Towers Watson client schemes. We've come up with a provision of roughly 7,000 times the largest concentration of members. So this can, especially for restricted schemes with large concentrations, be extremely material. In the paper, we've outlined some calculations. We've had to make assumptions. We don't know exactly what the profile of each scheme looks like. Those two risks are then combined, assuming they're independent. And, we'll, and you'll see this formula a lot, the square and square root. It's a way of dealing with covariances. Because you know that a one in 200 year event is not likely all to happen at the same time. You're not likely to have a, a bad normal claims here plus a catastrophe plus an IBNR error, which is the next one, plus, plus, plus. So it deals with this. And this, the assumption made here is that the two risks are independent. Hence the simple square and square root. You don't have a covariance. The next one relates more directly to us. And I think there are going to be some scared actuaries in this room. The next one is the risk that the actuary got the IBNR wrong. Which, that provision is on the balance sheet. To the extent that it's wrong, there's going to be a deviation from that. So again, a similar principle you can apply as applies to the claims variability. We assume those outstanding claims follow a log normal distribution, and you end up with exactly the same formula. You'll notice the only difference is I replaced CV with IBNR. It's the only difference. The other difference is that here, when I estimated the standard deviation, I used the traditional sample standard deviation formula for two reasons. Firstly, this provision is comparatively small. 
compared to the claims variability because you've got a short tail claim, you've got a short tail claim pattern, and therefore your IBNR is not actually a significant proportion of your contributions. And secondly, the way the data we got out of the council report was structured was in percentage form. The data said your IBNR was 98% accurate or 105 or however it turned out to be, which makes it very difficult to go and decompose it back into the components which you need to do the, the big formula. Again, this one probably needs to be aggregated because a one in 200 year event can't be, can't be inferred from a short time series. I probably get shot down for suggesting this, but arguably you should aggregate it by the actuary who signed the report. But maybe that's not such a good idea. Alternatively, you can aggregate it the same way you aggregate the claims variability. The last provision is a bit of a funny one. It's operational risk. And I know ITAP has done some work around operational risk. The provision in SAM is what's sitting there. SAM says 3% of contributions plus 3% of increase in gross contributions over 20%. That, that reflects growth. Growth is reflected as an operational risk. To go back a step, operational risk is a risk of personnel or systems failures. So it's around, in a medical scheme context, it's your administrator forgets to, or the administrator's system breaks down and they don't collect contributions. You just have to pay claims. Or the, the, the authorization rules that sit in the administrator's system fail and you've got to pay a whole lot of claims that you would normally have rejected, things like that. The discussion that we had with council was that you, as part of this is also the governance issues that have, that have, that have plagued some medical schemes over the last few years. That would also be an operational risk. Arguably, the best way to mitigate this is not to hold extra money. The best way to mitigate operational risk is around system controls, proper governance procedures, proper audit trails, proper this. In spite of that, the provision is there in SAM, so it, again, it gets included here. So these five components then get combined to produce what Gary, Gary showed as the SCR. So your SCR total is your liability plus your operational. Remember that asset risks are, are assessed separately. Then your liability risk is calculated using two assumptions. Firstly, we assume that the, the claims variability and the IBNR risk have a correlation of 50%. So you've got the same square and square root formula, except this time you've got a covariance. And then similarly, that, that combined risk is then known as an underwriting risk, which is then assumed, and these are consistent with SAM and Solvency 2 to be 25% correlated with your catastrophe risk. Arguably, they should be independent, but for a measure of, of prudence, they, they use 25%. We then add the provision for budget deficit because you know that that is there, and then the principle of SAM is that you add the operational risk. So your SCR is then calculated using this formula. And I will come back to this. I'll show you we've gone and calculated it for all 82, 83 schemes in the country. I'll show you how they compare. So I'm going to now deviate slightly from that before I come back to it and deal with assets. I am by no means an asset expert, but we consulted with the Towers Watson investment team around this, and we consulted with SAM. SAM has a large number of modules reflecting currencies and defaults and credit spreads and equities and all sorts of different things. Given the restrictions that apply around medical scheme investments and given the fact that asset risk is generally quite a, a comparatively small component compared to your liability risk, we felt it was easier, we felt it was more appropriate to combine all the return risks into one module. What we then did was model those return risks using a capital markets model that Taz Watson has developed, which has, which has correlations and which has expected returns for each, 
For each asset class, we then set out a notional portfolio reflecting what most of our clients are holding. It may or may not be reflective of the industry. That's one of the discussions we need to have. To that, we then added the risk of a default event, given that assuming that defaults fell outside of your normal day-to-day, -day. similarly to the catastrophe risk. That default risk we applied to cash holdings only for the simple reason that cash holdings are the vast majority of, of your assets in most cases. And especially, and it's doubly problematic because you've only got four large banks that you can hold cash holdings in. Again, there we use the SAM formula directly. So the asset return risk is the second place we deviated from SAM. The concentration risk, we use the SAM principles. What we've done is we've combined it into a simple formula. And that is the simple formula. So each, those reflect a 99.5% value at risk, and you multiply them by the holdings that you have. And as Gary said, that asset risk reserve then gets subtracted from your assets before they enter the solvency equation. So which brings us back to Gary's, Gary's pretty picture. I'm now allowed pictures as well. I don't only have formula. And this is exactly the same as it was before. But there's an additional layer. What we've dealt with here is only pillar one of SAM. SAM has three pillars. Pillar two is around economic capital and long-term sustainability. Pillar three is around regulation. We didn't go into the murky world of pillar three. But we did do some work on pillar two. What we're saying is the SCR will allow you to survive a single year. But most medical schemes, most insurance companies would like to be sustainable over a longer period. Under SAM, and I think Peter Doyle mentioned it yesterday, insurers have to perform a process called an ORSA, which is an own risk and solvency assessment. Essentially, the ORSA principle is that you have to meet your SCR at all times over what's called a planning period. That planning period is defined, it's not explicitly defined, but it's usually taken to be three to five years. So on top of your SCR and your scheme reserves, you're going to have a, you're going to have a reserve target or a long-term, what we call an economic capital target. That will differ by schemes, depending on strategy, management interventions, all of that. We've set out a framework in our paper that, that deals with this, but we can't prescribe, I don't think council could prescribe, and also is a, very is a very unique process to each medical scheme. What we've tried to do is lay out a set of principles that smaller schemes could use to mitigate the cost of doing an also. And that economic capital target will always be bigger than your SCR, it may or may not be bigger than your reserves. The last thing I think is what everybody's, actually, what, what everybody's actually wanting to see, given all I've said. And that's how do the schemes currently compare? And that's shown in that graph. Each dot is a different scheme. We've, we've excluded some of the small restricted schemes who had solvency requirements of 100, 150% or solvency, actual solvency of 150%. Mostly so you could see everybody else. As I said, this is before aggregation. So this wouldn't reflect actual solvency targets, but it, 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 gives, a, it gives an idea of how the industry looks. The black line is 25%. Anybody, any scheme above the black line meets the 25%. The gray line is the SCR. Anybody above the gray line meets the SCR. Actually, what we can see here is that arbitrary as it was, 25% actually didn't do a bad job. The 25% has kept the vast majority of schemes above their SCR, which we found is encouraging. So imperfect as our regulatory regime is, it does appear that schemes are, schemes are stable and, relative and comparatively solvent. There were only, I think, two schemes that met the 25% but didn't meet their SCR. Those would be small restricted schemes generally with large budget deficits. That's generally what pushes your SCR up. The claims variability tends not to be as big. Okay. 
So that's me done. The last thing is the next steps. As Gary said, we've outlined a framework. We don't, we're not claiming that we have the answer. We're saying this is a starting point. Use it, don't use it. Debate it. We as the actual profession need to be integrally involved in whatever transition is going to happen, if it's going to happen. So we believe that as an, as an industry, as, an, as a group of actuaries dealing with healthcare, we need to debate these principles. We've set out a starting point, and we, th we see it only as a starting point. There will be changes, there will be tweaks, there will be various other things. So we'd love to, we'd love to have questions, comments. Anybody thinks we're completely off base, that's also fine. Otherwise, thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Adam. Any questions? Emil. Thank you. Um, I feel as if I shouldn't criticize because as if you've taken us from a donkey car to a Porsche and I'm going to complain about the cup holder or something like that. So, <laughs> so in that context, I mean, it, this is great work. It's obviously it's so much better than 25%. I think the one aspect that we do need to think about, and it comes to some of your last points, is that Unlike the rest of the world that follows SAM, medical schemes have no source of capital other than, member other than member contributions, effectively. Which means that if the solvency is too high, it, it comes at a price, directly to consumers, which is not the case necessarily in other parts of the world. So the, I think one has to take that into account. So the, the fact that your results, and I think it's very consistent with what we got at ITAP as well, basically all schemes are fine if you do a, a risk-based calculation, but the real point is that it is expensive to maintain these high levels of solvency. So th I think the, the, probably the only sort of important aspect that I would encourage you to think about is the um, operating result. I think what we have seen in the industry time and again is that it actually has, it does have a long-term sustainability risk if you underprice, but it actually has a pretty short-term and very direct impact depending on the extent to which you underprice. So I think your formula, it works because it takes it into account to some extent. Um, but if you look at the ITAP formula, we've done some work on that recently, you very quickly get into the solvency requirement actually mirroring the actuarial death spiral that you risk in a medical scheme when you underprice. So in other words, the larger it is, almost it must be an exponential increase in solvency penalty for that um, if you, in the formula. So it might be worth thinking about that. But other than that, I think it's excellent work, and it obviously takes a big step forward. So thank you. Um, Thanks, Emil. <laughs> Can I answer, or would you rather take another? Um, we actually have thought about that, and as I said, the principle that we use for the SCR is the SCR is a single-year event. So whatever happens in the first year is all we consider. When we did the economic capital calculations, that's exactly what we did. We essentially assumed that over a planning period, the scheme would have to restore that operating position back to a break-even. And, and then you get exactly the result that you talked about, where a 1% operating deficit is 1%, but a 5% operating deficit is not 5%, it's more like 15 to 20%. So you do get exactly that result, and it feeds into the economic capital debate. But again, that's a function of how quickly the scheme is willing to close the gap and how quickly the scheme is able to close the gap. So it, it's something that falls more under the ORSA than the SCR. In this presentation, we specifically dealt with the SCR. But so we definitely have thought about that. 
just, I mean, the debate that Adam and I are having internally is, is around this exact point, you know, and, and where we are at the moment is to say the debate you should be having with trustees is on the target level of solvency when you're on a break-even operating position. And then you can plan to get there. You know, to, if, you, if you're running a 5% or 10% operating deficit, arguably you're unstable. You know, so even if you come up with a big reserve, even if you've got 100% reserves, it's, it's just not a place to be. So we, yeah, since writing the paper, we've been grappling with, with that particular point. Thanks, Shivani. A similar point uh, to Emile's point, just around I, I think the messaging. Um, so you know, Adam, you were saying that it's um, the current situation is okay because most schemes are better capitalised, you know, than, than they would be under the SER. So I agree, I agree with Emile that that comes at a cost. Um, and I, th I think just in terms of getting that message across politically, um, and you know, doing doing everything we can be doing to be shifting the, the industry, um, I think it's worth thinking about about you know uh, quantifying that cost uh, and seeing what that would translate, and if we gave some of that back to members. Just just a point. I mean, it's quite an interesting. It, it, it is a cost, but it's really a cost that's, that sits with a handful of schemes and a handful of schemes that have arguably got a significant market advantage already. So I think the regular needs to think how do they, th there's no doubt that those large schemes need to hold less reserves, but you know, how, how do you transition from where you are now to that position without endangering the competition landscape and without um, allowing those schemes to recklessly reduce reserves? So, so I think there's a whole bunch of Emil, you've had your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time's up, baby. We'll give you one minute. Yeah. The first thing is the operating, the operating result is your protection against exactly that. Because if you, if you, if you price it down, you want to reduce yourself, so then you'll get penalty. In other words, all that this will do is it reduces the pressure on schemes to increase solvency beyond what's necessary, and that is a small impact. And we can show you the numbers on that connection one with that. Second, I forgot to make just one other comment, which is that we should not overstate the complexity of this. We live in a world where there's Excel spreadsheets. You could just put a number in the cell and get the answer. It really is no different whether you have a big formula. You have 25%. It's equally complex to, to do the calculation. So I really don't think that we should say that this is complex and that's the reason not to do it. And I think also that the concern about large schemes get, gaining competitive advantage, I think, is overstated. If, every, if basically every scheme is above what the requirement would be in any event, it just means that the pressure to price for it is removed for the whole industry, except a handful of schemes. Thanks. My one comment is just the reinsurance, you mentioned it in your description, but obviously that would support smaller schemes to enter the market and, and meet these requirements. So, so the last question, time is up. Um, yeah, I think my I had two questions. So my first question was related to the cost of smaller schemes. With the contributions increasing consistently, how much cost would implementing this, especially for smaller schemes, have an effect? Um, and my second question is more towards managed care. So we entering into these fixed fee managed care organization contracts. And overseas, they actually have solvency requirements for those managed care organizations. So have you considered adding um, 
a factor that would remove some risk from the scheme and then insert a probability of default for the managed care organization to reduce solvency for schemes while managed care take on more risk and even hospital networks taking on more risk through fixed fee and capitation arrangement contracts. I'll answer the first question and leave the second one to, to Adam. Um, but the first, what we find with the smaller schemes is they're holding too, mu too much reserves anyway as a rule. But they've got no context. You know, they don't know is 100% too much, is 80% too much. So I actually think this will help smaller schemes be much more accurate about what they need to hold um, and probably release reserves that, that are, are being held unnecessarily. <laughs> to try and answer the second question, and it's quite a difficult one, there is no regulation that requires managed care organizations that take risk to hold reserves at all. They should as part of their business management, but there's no regulatory regime that requires them to do so. From a scheme point of view, to the extent that you have those arrangements and they stabilize your claims, it'll come through in that claims and expenses variability component. Because your variability of claims under those arrangements will be zero. So it will come through. We haven't thought about an explicit credit. It's an, it is an alternative to the extent that these become a lot more prevalent than they currently are. The most prevalent ones are really the hospital fixed fee and, and ARM type arrangements. There are some managed care arrangements where managed care providers take claims risk specific, specifically, but it's not, they're not particularly prevalent at the moment. To the extent they become more prevalent, you may need an explicit component. At the moment, we really feel that most schemes pay 85 to 90% e probably more of their claims on a fee-for-service basis. So it's not really necessary at this stage. If it becomes 50-50 or it becomes 25%, then we might have to think about it. But at this stage, those really aren't that prevalent. Maybe to end off, I mean, just my thoughts is that reinsurance is typically allowed for these solvency risk-based calculations. Um, capitation and fixed fees, alternative reimbursements, um, are pr probably a better form of reinsurance than reinsurance themselves. In theory, it should lower your capital. You might have a default risk, credit risk, yeah, that's sort of increasing, if, especially if they're not holding reserves. So, but I think in theory, it should be, allow should be able to be allowed for. So. But let's, let's end there. Thanks, everyone. Thanks to the speakers.